0: And co host Caroline Kilborn.
1: Hello, everyone. I hope. You're not having this heat wave like we are already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of discouraging. I was in Texas. It got very hot. I came back to Iowa. It was just as hot. A week ago, I hear it was like 40 degrees here, and now it's 90. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. I know. But this weekend, we should maybe get some actual spring weather, maybe. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, hoping for the best.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Thank God for air conditioning. That's all I can say. Yeah, no (laughs) kidding. And, you know, I remember growing up without it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's how old I am. (laughs) Yeah, and we lived in a big brick house, and it was hot. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mom, who do we have with us today? Today we have a... Uh, A very interesting book, and uh, the title of it is The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames. And the author is Justine Cowan, and she was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Bay Area. Growing up wandering through California's majestic redwood forest, she became a passionate environmentalist and has spent most of her career working to protect our nation's natural resources. A graduate of UC Berkeley and Duke University School of Law, she lives with her husband in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is a true story, and it is, um, it's very interesting, and <laughs> and it's yeah. a harrowing story. <laughs> it's a harrowing story, and it's a historic, it's a historical novel, not a novel, a historical memoir, because it really happened, and it was, it, it it's unbelievable that it happened to me. I mean, I just, I just can't, I know, I can't get my head around it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome so. to Writer's Voices, Justine. It's nice to be here. So who is Dorothy Soames?
2: Well, I didn't know. I had never heard the the name Dorothy Soames when I was growing up, but I didn't really know a lot about my mother's past or anything like that. She had always told me that she had come from some aristocratic upbringing in England. And, um, you know, one day I found her writing this name over and over again, Dorothy Soames. And it would be years before I discovered that that was her name um, until she was 12 years old, growing up at the Hospital for the Maintenance and Education of Exposed and Deserted Young Children, which was also known as the founding hospital. Which raised illegitimate children to basically serve Britain's ruling class. Wow.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, wow, exactly, exactly. And what's so, so how did you end up discovering this information?
2: Um, well, it, it came out in bits and pieces over our my lifetime. I mean, for example, when I was growing up, I always knew that my mother was illegitimate, but I can never say when it was that I learned that information. It was just something that permeated our household. Um, so I had always thought that she was somehow cast off by this aristocratic family, um, and she was raised in a boarding school of sorts, Um, and then, um, but I was, I was never allowed to ask anything. It was always taboo. And, you know, I, I learned this name when I was 19 years old. And then later when I was in my thirties, um, an envelope showed up and it was from my mother and it said some of the details of what had happened to her when she had grown up. And what is surprising to some is that I, put it back in the envelope and I didn't read it for many years um, because my mother and I had just, we had such a troubled relationship that um, I, I didn't want to read it at that time. And so it wasn't until after she died that I took a journey across the ocean to London um, to really discover everything that had happened to my mother. And, and as you're saying, I, I mean, even for me, it was, an unbelievable story that oftentimes I had to almost pinch myself to think, I can't believe all of this really happened.
1: Mm -hmm. I believe that. Yeah.
2: I think one of the
0: most touching things about this, about the book, which, um, well, let's just maybe describe that the book is partially your mother's story, but partially the story of your relationship with your mother and your childhood and growing up. So it's a dual memoir in a sense, um, and you had even though your mother was had died you did have what she had written about her childhood to work with and you were able to find other people who she had been in this um foundling like hospital with um to to confirm s- some of the details but the thing that i think is so touching is is how it really got you to understand and accept and and uh, forgive
2: your mother yes i mean we had a very troubled relationship and it was it was very difficult and we our bond i don't think ever formed at any time and and part of the journey for me was to understand why um when my mother died you know i i had such anger towards her through much much of my life um, but then when she died, I was really overcome with grief. And, I mean, I was exhausted for weeks, and it didn't make sense to me how it is that I could feel such um, intense feelings for someone who I'd always at least thought that I despise um, and tried to get away from, and why would that have happened? And so it was really a journey to understand all of that, what had happened in our family. And why?
0: When you set out to learn about your mother's past, did you know that you were going to write about it?
2: I didn't. Um, It was really just a journey for me and um, to understand what had happened. Um, But then as I started sharing the story with those around me, um, it became clear that this was a quite unusual story, um, Mm. to say the least. And, you know, and also I I knew that there were other people who struggled with what I call the should. Um, The should love somebody, should feel a certain way about somebody, but you don't. Um, And what do you do with those feelings? And particularly, what do you do with those feelings when you learn that, you know, for example, you had a parent or a sibling or someone in your life that didn't treat you well. And then you find out that, you know, perhaps there was a reason um, that they were mistreated in some way um, and how it went down through the energy you know, the different generations. And how do you process that as the person who was the recipient of some of that, you know, intergenerational trauma? And so i set about to start to write a book about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Now in writing this, you you know, you're really opening yourself up to the world. Was that hard?
2: Right. <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I will say that the first time, the first draft of the book didn't have a lot of me in it. <laughs> it was really more of my mother's story in the, in the background. But, you know, my editor at Harper was
1: really, um,
2: you know, I, I she was astute and she, she realized that the story was going to resonate more if I included how it impacted me. Um, because, you know, it's not just my mother's story and it's not just the story of what happened, but what happens when decisions are made about how women are allowed to raise their children or not raise their children and, you know, the institutionalization of children, what happens in the generations to come. And, you know, that's one thing that makes this book a little bit more unusual than others is that it doesn't just talk about what happened in um, the past, but how it bleeds through into the present. And, you know, that was also the part that I think resonated with um, a lot of readers. What was the most Mm -hmm. difficult to talk about.
0: (laughs) I am sure. I am sure. Um, There was a a page near the end where you're talking to someone who had been in the Foundling Hospital and you confessed that you, you know, had had this troubled relationship and she said, "Well, of course, you know, how would she have known how to be a mom, how to be a mother?" And it was it just made me it brought tears to my eyes, and it it seemed to be a turning point for you as well.
2: It, it was, and what I learned, and I hope others can learn from the book, is that you know oftentimes when there's a troubled family, um, the the child tends to take the blame on themselves um, and yes.
1: oftentimes yes.
2: there isn't there isn't blame in the way that you think there is I mean and that that might not be the most useful way and the most useful way to think about it because you know I blamed myself even though I was the youngest um, child in the family and um, it made me realize that this that so much that transpired in our family had been set in motion you know, before my mother was even born and that our family was more of a victim of tragic circumstance than anyone in particular in our family being to blame or being a bad person. It's, you know, we were, our entire family um, was the victim of this institution that, you um, know, very brutal institution um, that, you know, raised children to be servants.
0: Wow. Caroline, you've mentioned several times to me in your experience as a teacher, as yes. a high school teacher, <laughs> yes. about kids feeling, um, coming to you. Well, you. You say it. You tell it better.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I, I taught high school for several years, and I had more than once I had children, uh, students coming to me and uh, telling me that their parents were getting a divorce and that they felt it was their fault. They really felt that, and i I tried to explain to them that, not, that I was sure that it wasn't, but they needed to talk to their parents about it and let them know how they felt and of course they were reluctant to do that, but that's that was important. I thought that they should do that, but that's that I think that's very it must be very common that children think that you know
0: Justine, do you think it would have made a big difference in your life if your parents had been open and communicated these this history and these issues early on
2: I do think it would have made a difference um if I'd understood earlier on but as child I'm not sure you really understand um mm. the concepts of intergenerational trauma and all of that so <laughs> well <I> true mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um I mean I do think that would have helped but you know I looking back, I think that, um, you know, my mother and what she went through was so horrific um, that I, I'm not, I'm not sure if, you know, we can parse through and say, well, if this had happened and this has happened, it would have been that significantly different, mm. um, you know, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And
0: the other thing that is unique, I think, about this book is that in addition to being, like I said, the story of your mother's life and the story of your relationship with her, you delve into the history of the Foundling Hospital.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell us a little bit about yeah.
2: how you researched that. Well, certainly. So, I actually um, went to London on several occasions, and um, near the British Museum is the Foundling Museum, and there's also archives. And so, I spent time there. Um, going through the history, and, and the history in, in the uh, UK, it's it's a little it's more known than it is here in the United States. Though um, it is the place that um, Charles Dickens um, had his inspiration for Oliver Twist and many of his other books. He, he lived right around the corner, and it's also where Handel wrote um, the performed the Messiah, and the reason that we listen to the Messiah every Christmas. Um is because of the founding hospital. it would be played at um, as a fundraising um, as a fundraising tool um, each year and all of London would flock there and it also has this, uh, the founding hospital is also connected with the British Museum and Royal Academy of arts and so it's so though many Americans might not know the founding hospital, they're very familiar with a lot of um, the history surrounding it uh, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it started in the 1700s, and at the time, illegitimacy was so shameful that women would toss their children, their babies, into the sewers of London streets because they had nowhere else to turn. They would be kicked out, um, and many children would die. And a man um, named Thomas Quorum decided that he did not um, want that to continue. And um, he made a bargain um, with uh, the British government that if um, they would raise these children, they could become servants. So he basically saved the lives of these children, but in exchange, um, they were destined for a life of service and drudgery. And that's how it all began. And 200 years later, um, it was it was still it was going, still pretty much the same. It was, it was still going, and I mean, they actually wore. My mother wore the same uniforms um, that were uh, designed two hundred years before, and pretty much never, nothing had changed. they would kind of been frozen in time, um, and so it, people are always surprised to hear that this happened in the the thirties and forties and fifties because it seems mm-hmm. like it's out of the it's out of the pages of Charles Dickens. Right, or Annie. It also
0: reminds me a lot of the musical Annie. I wonder if that was based on the Foundling Hospital. Interesting, I'm not sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So these the women who... Women had to apply to have their babies accepted here. And not everyone could even get in.
2: That's... (laughs) Right, that was another interesting twist that there were that over time the institution um, had two important purposes. One was to raise these children to serve Britain's ruling class, and the other was to save a woman from disgrace. And um, and that purpose even became more important as time went on. That let's just say there was a woman who became pregnant for whatever reason outside of marriage. The hope was that by taking her child. Changing the name of the child so it became, you know, a secret. Um, and they, would, I mean, it would be protected by locking key um, in a place, the real identity of the child that no one could get to unless they had this key. Um, and then that woman could go back into society and take her place in society and not be ruined. And it was considered that that would save her from a life of prostitution and or disgrace. But to do that, um, they wanted to make sure that she was worthy of their generosity of taking her child, um, and so they had to, the, These women had to go through this very rigorous process of demonstrating that they were virtuous, but they had a bit of a lapse. And there was no one better to tell a woman how virtuous she was and to prove it than the men in her life. <laughs> so um, that happened to my grandmother. Um, When she applied, that they didn't take her word for it, and they actually said that we need some, quote, corroboration um, for her story. And so they went out and talked to her pastor, her doctor, and her brother, who all had to attest, both in personal interviews and in writing, that she was a virtuous woman, and that if they took the child, that she could return to her station in life and not not repeat her mistake. And,
0: of course, the father of the child gets off without any repercussions whatsoever.
2: No repercussions, no shame, no nothing. So it was always um, the burden was borne completely by the woman. Um, So you you were
0: able to find out who your grandmother was?
2: Yes, yes, I was. um, There were extensive files. Um, that I was able to um, access and um, I um, actually was able to hold in my hand letters that my grandmother had written. And she had been forced to give up her child. Her brother had kicked her out and she had nowhere to turn. And and she was basically told she was going to have to give up her child. And then month after month, year after year, she wrote letters asking about her little girl. And I held those letters in my hand, and you could feel the heartbreak um, in each pen (laughs) stroke that she had um, never
1: wanted to give up her little girl. Wow. What I found interesting was that men took over the running of the place. I mean, they were the ones that, that dictated what was going, you know, what was going to happen. I thought that was, I didn't think that was right. I, I yeah, It was,
2: um, I mean, it was a male-dominated institution. The men decided mm-hmm. whether or not um, a woman would be able to give up her child. A man decided yeah. whether or not a woman would be able to get her child back. My grandmother yeah. begged to have her child returned to her. And this was something that you saw throughout the history of the founding hospital, women coming back and saying, please, please give me my child back. My circumstances have changed. I can now raise this child. Um, You know, even sometimes the woman would get married and her new husband was fine with it. And they would say no. Um, And they would say no, because they would say that they were better able to raise this child um, to serve the public than this woman would. And so she would not get
1: to see her child again. Um, so it, it was just, um, it's just punishing. punishing. Yeah. Yeah, punishing, punishing, punishing. That was what it was. That's what yes. <laughs> And the
0: child was being punished just as much for the shame of having been born illegitimately.
2: Oh, definitely. Um, it was a brutal institution. And. I always say that the worst thing that happened to these children is that they were raised without love. Um, They were never, they were never touched unless they were being hit. Um, And it was all by design. Um, They were being raised to be obedient servants. But it seemed it didn't work, did it? (laughs) At least not with your mother. (laughs) Oh, no, it did not. She was not obedient. That is, that is true. Um and you know it was interesting because um, you you go back in history and there was there was a, a a governor um named Jonas Hanway who he um he originally proposed the concept of solitary confinement and and um, thought that if you confined a child or an adult um that somehow if they were in the dark alone that they would come out um and understand the error of their ways and become a better person. But, you know, modern psychology tells us that actually the opposite is true, um, that you basically break the spirit, um, and they're more likely to act out. And so it became this kind of vicious cycle where they would, you know, abuse the child, try to get the child to behave, and then that was more likely to make them act out, which would lead to more abuse and more abuse and more abuse. They
1: they never they never learned they never learned from their mistakes, did they?
2: (laughs) No, no, they definitely they definitely didn't. Well, they
1: didn't they they couldn't believe they could ever make a mistake. That was the problem, of course. Yeah, Yeah. no kidding.
0: You're listening to Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline and our guest today is Justine Cowan, author of The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames. So Justine, when you decided that you were going to write about this. Um, how did you, you know, had, had you ever written a book before? And how did you go about
2: starting? Well, I had never written a book before. I had written a lot throughout my life. Um, and But, you know, newsletters and press releases and legal briefs and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, I actually took time off and, Um, decided that I was going to really give it my all. And, um, you know, what I learned was that when writing that um, I wrote a first draft, it took me about maybe a year or so to write my first draft. And then it took about a year and a half to edit it. Um, and so I've learned that writing a book is all in the editing. You edit and edit. I think I've read my book about <laughs> yeah. five thousand times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, so I had no. I had never written a book, but um, but it, it was a book that I felt needed to be written because um, I mean it's a part of history. Oh, that yes. it should be told, and you know, it had been told in different ways in the past. There were some history books um, that were told about it, but not in a way. I really wanted to bring it to life in telling this important part of history and what happened to these um, poor girls and the intergenerational trauma and all of the things that went about it. And I wanted to tell it in a way that that read more more like fiction in a way, even though it's nonfiction. And, and so I could get the word out more instead of you know a dry history book. And also there was a book that was done um, a few years ago, but it was from the perspective of a boy, a male family. Mm. And so this book is really different in that it's much more focused on the experiences of the girls that you know grow up into women, um, and also the lasting impact of you know institutions like this on um, the generations to come.
0: It was interesting too, that your father had his own trauma, childhood trauma, and right. that you also was- didn't know much about as a child
2: yeah and he he was more open um, and he he wouldn't keep it a secret, but it was obviously so painful for him to speak about um so he would he would talk about it when asked and um and like my mother, he also wrote it down, and so um you know he lost his mother in uh, childbirth and then was sent to live with an aunt, um, and then his father remarried, and then he was sent back there, and the, the new the stepmother didn't want him there, and then he went off to the war, and um, his cousins, who had been raised by brothers, you know, had two of them died, and, you know, it was really just an extraordinary amount of trauma, and his father also died, so he also became um, an orphan of sorts, and I, I always think that, the, the trauma that my father experienced that was different but still very deep was um, what bonded my parents together.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you started, um, started this research and you found, your, found out who your grandmother was, were you ever able to reach any family members?
2: Um, I did reach out to some family members, um, and wrote letters, um, to members of the Western family in England. And I received only one reply and it was very courteous, um, very British. (laughs) And, um, and (laughs) it said, you know, how, you know, thank you for reaching out, but I'm so sorry, you know, anyone who would know anything about this is, you know, no longer living and, um, you know, it was a little bit of, and have a nice life. So there was definitely no, there there was, I mean, it was in, and it was, it was in a a very British polite way, that if you read between the lines, it was, it was clear that there was, there was no desire to, you know, rekindle any sort of family connection there. Mm. Um, So, but. Even after um, the book came out. Yeah. Even after the book came out. um, And in England, you know, it was, it was, He was reported in every major newspaper and, you know, huge spreads and all of that. And the times, the telegraph, the daily mail, everything. So um, it did get quite a bit of play, but I didn't, I never heard from a family member. However, I did hear from many foundlings and the children of foundlings
1: um, who um,
2: read the book and they would reach out to me and it was, um, it was fascinating um, to hear them. And, um, the foundlings in particular, it, well, both the foundlings and the children of the foundlings, you could sense the, um, how impactful the book was to them that they felt heard and believed. And, you know, the, it would mm. always start out, it would always start out with saying, yes, that was all true. Everything that happened was true because it's such, the institution was so, I mean, it does seem like a movie, you know, it seems like a Charles Dickens tale. It mm-hmm. does. Um, you know, with with these little children who had to march in twos every day to be raised to be servants and, um, you know, and all that happened. Um, and they, you could tell that it meant so much to them to be heard. And then the children of the soundlings that reached out to me all had similar stories. I mean, there might be differences in when they found out and how they found out. Some knew earlier, some knew later. Some didn't find out until after a parent died. But it was all the same, um, that there was really a failure to bond between the parent and the child, which again brought me more peace and it brought them peace because it helped us understand that we had just been caught up in the piece of history. Um it you know, it wasn't it wasn't our fault that you know it really been set in stone you know by King George um, the one who started the institution in the 1700s. And so I say that, you know, a king set our family's history in motion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i was surprised that, that uh, Dorothy had stayed in contact with Mrs. Vans and Miss Wright, the two women who had caused her so much pain. That that was interesting. Didn't you find that interesting?
2: That was fascinating. Um, and so, so Miss Wright was the um, headmistress and she the way that she was described and i've talked to other families i mean again you know you see where even though that happened after dickens time um you see where he got his inspiration because if you were going to think of a cruel headmistress you know she'd have her hair up you know in a bun and walk around stern and she always had a um she always like she always had a leather strap um and ready to exact punishment and um, she would frequently lock my mother in closets, and closet. um, and, um, and then Miss um, Bands was uh, her foster brother. Which what happened at the institution was the first um, few years of their of the child's life, they would be sent out to the countryside to be nursed, um, and this was not a benevolent decision. It was a decision that was made because. In the institution, a lot of the children would die if they didn't. If they were just in a giant institution, so they were sent to homes, um, and like my mother was, but they received no. She received no love there either. And then at the age of five, no matter what the relationship was between the child and the foster parent, um, the child would be taken away and sent to the institution um, where Miss Wright presided. And they would come, and they would be shorn. They would be bathed um, in a bath with other children and their clothes would be discarded and then they would be put in these uniforms that they would wear for successive years as long as they were there. And so they were really ripped from their, anyone that might even serve as a parent, not once but twice. And um, they would not be even told the day of. Um, They would just be taken away. Um, You know, one story was a, a a little boy was just collecting flowers by the roadside, um, and the bus, um, you know, a coach as they called it, um, pulled up, and he was told to get on, and so he just got on, and that was it. He never saw his foster family again. He didn't know where he was going, and he didn't have to bring anything with him because he, they just gave him a new uniform, and then
1: that was that. At the age of five, you know, you, you would think you would think that that they would realize that that was that was worse than. Then somehow having them take having them take taken care of as babies in the in the home in the foundling home yeah. instead of I mean carrying them away from a family oh uh,
0: you, you know what surprised yeah. me though yeah. with all this cruelty was that when when your mother's your grandmother was sending gifts to your mother they actually did let her have them that surprised
2: right. me a little bit yeah, yeah but she didn't. She didn't know who the gifts were from. <laughs> Which she is weird. I know. But, you know, they didn't have a sense of family. They didn't know that there were mothers and fathers that shared a last name. And, you know, some of the the basic concepts of family, they didn't know. And money. And, they didn't know um, anything about money either. They didn't know anything about money. They didn't know anything about maps. Um, kind of those basic things. they would never held money um and so they really just weren't they weren't being raised to function in society they were being raised to you know be downstairs in a um palatial house and you know changing chamber pots i mean that's what they were being sent for their very specific purpose
0: and ideally not to ever get married or have a have a Romantic relationship of any kind. That they did. They just. I mean, did did these people think that that not telling kids anything about sex or love means that they would never have those feelings? I mean, that's sort of naive.
1: Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, it didn't always. You know, it it was not a particularly well thought out uh, approach. Um, No, it was not. so, but, um, but you know, they were able to do this because, you know, what I learned was that illegitimacy was so shameful that that the, these children were considered almost subhuman. They didn't really view them as children the way you would view other children as. And um, that's how deep um, the uh, prejudice was for illegitimate children. And the mothers, they actually had in the law that, That they were considered mentally ill. If you had a child outside of wedlock, that was actually grounds to institutionalize you, um, along with uh, uh, they say this in the law, imbeciles. Um, Of course, the man was not considered to be in any way no um, deficient. Only, only the mother, and she. I mean, it was actually considered a mental illness, even if she'd been raped. Um. Yeah,
0: or forced, so, you know. Yeah. yeah, Justine, why don't you read oh, a little yeah. bit from the Secret Life of Dorothy
2: Soames for us? Certainly, I would be happy to. I'm going to um actually read um from the beginning. All right, and um I'm going to read the first chapter. I'm going to skip over just a little bit, um, but this should give you a good idea of how the book starts. I always knew my mother had a secret. She guarded it fiercely, keeping it under lock and key. That was how I envisioned it, a hidden chamber tucked away in the recesses of my mother's twisted mind. But her secret was too big to be contained, and it would ooze out like a thick slurry, poisoning her thoughts and covering our family in darkness. When I was 19, my mother accidentally gave me a clue to her past, yet it would take me years to gather the courage to learn more. Eventually, I followed a trail of breadcrumbs that led me across an ocean into an institution's macabre and Baroque history. Only then did I discover the agony of generations of women scorned by society and of thousands of innocent children imprisoned, although they had committed no crime. And I would dredge up family secrets that forced me to reassess everything I had ever known. Of course, I didn't know any of that when the phone rang that morning. I only knew that it was an odd time for my father to call. I need your help. It's your mother. His voice was strained and loud. I had trouble concentrating as he described the events that had unfolded earlier that morning. My mother tightly clutching the steering wheel as she careened through a labyrinth of twisting hillside roads. My father, my father, racing close behind in his matching black Jaguar, desperate to stop her. Luckily, he caught up with her before she could run herself off the road. She said she had to go to the hospital. The hospital. Why? Was she hurt? No. My father offered no further information, but he wasn't really calling to explain, and I wouldn't find out where my mother had been trying to go that day until years after her death. I have to be in court today. I don't care, I wanted to say, but the word stuck in my throat. One thing I'd picked up in my 19 years was the intuition to dread what I knew was coming next. It's not safe to leave her alone. Images flashed before me, jagged shards of glass on an oriental rug, a papier-mâché pinata swinging from a tree, broken dolls strewn across bleak hardwood floors. I pulled my textbooks out of my backpack and returned them to the desk as my arms began to tingle, my fingers going numb. I usually had more time to prepare myself. I tried not to think about what I would find as I drove across the Bay Bridge, watching the city skyline come into view before heading south towards those by the time I pulled into the driveway, my father was gone. I parked a few feet behind my mother's shiny black jaguar in its usual spot. Nothing seemed out of place. The lawn was freshly mown the roses on trammel. I climbed a set of brick stairs to the front door, surveying the row of arched windows that lined my childhood home for any hint of what awaited me. The front door was unlocked. I took a deep breath as I pushed it open and peeked into the living room where the gold upholstered furniture perfectly complemented the giant hand-woven rug, and the various objects d'art gathered by my mother on her frequent trips to Butterfields and Butterfields were strategically placed on antique tables and in glass display cases. It was a sort of room designed to impress or intimidate, but I was only looking for signs of disarray. A couch cushion off-kilter, a toppled figurine. None of the ornate furnishings appeared to have been disturbed, so I inched down the hallway, gently dragging my fingertips along the bright white wall. Each week, a young woman who spoke little English spent hours mopping the floors, scrubbing the bathrooms and the kitchen, dusting every room and nook and cranny, though so rarely to my mother's satisfaction. After the house cleaner had finished her tasks, I often found my mother wiping the walls with a vinegar-soaked rag. Scratches and red patches on her knuckles were telltale signs that she'd been on her hands and knees re-scrubbing the bathroom floor. My shoes made no sound as I approached my mother's room and knocked lightly, hoping she was asleep. Justine, is that you? She called out. I tiptoed inside, feeling a familiar wave of guilt over the fact that I didn't actually want to see or speak with her. The room was dim, but I could make out my mother's silhouette as she sat up in bed, her nightgown reflected the light streaming through the gaps in the heavy white curtains. She was holding a notepad. I immediately recognized her old fashioned calligraphic script with its precise bends and curves. I couldn't make out the words in the shadowy light, but I saw deep indentations on the thinly lined paper, alarming with dark smudges and small tears where it looked like a pencil might have broken. She turned the notepad toward me and a splash of morning light illuminated the page. Each line contained a name written over and over with the same unwavering precision. It was a name I had never heard before and would not hear again for many years. Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames.
0: And that was Justine Cowan reading from The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames. (laughs) Now, this book came out in hardcover about a year ago, I believe. Yeah. And now it's coming out as a paperback and with an additional chapter. Would you like to tell us a little
2: bit about that? Certainly. So, um, you know, I I thought that my journey had ended um, when the book was published, but not long after a piece um, appeared. In the New York Times, I started to um, receive various phone calls, and um, a woman reached out to me and somehow had found my phone number. um, And she left a message, and I recognized that it was the voice of a foundling. And she said that she knew my mother, and I called her back, and um, she had been at the foundling hospital with. My mother, um, but it was really only later in life that they had become close. Um, like my mother, she was in California, and they would have phone calls, and and my mother would share things with her that actually she never even shared in the memoir that my mother had written. Um, it was something that she kept hidden away. Um, you know what had happened to her in various pieces um, of her life, and. Um, and then, it, you know, it also describes other people who had, re- you know, had reached out and and all sorts of things that happened. When, like I said, I thought my journey <laughs> had ended, and clearly, and clearly, it hadn't. Um, and so, uh, and so, I included an extra chapter that um, <laughs> that details a lot of what happened. So, and you know, and also the the people that reached out to me that perhaps weren't from the family of a foundling, but Um, felt the strong emotions when reading this book. Um,
0: and helped you find more information because there there were a number of mysteries still when, when you finished the book, a number of things you had not been able to decipher or figure out. Some of which you were able to get more information about, but there were still some that you never, never did. Like, do you have? Any guess about how your mother learned to play the piano?
2: I don't. Um, I can only think my mother was very smart, and I can only imagine that that she probably took lessons of some sort because she certainly subjected me to enough lessons. Um, I still have I, I still have yet to encounter anyone who's ever taken private handwriting lessons, um, and they didn't work, by the way. So I don't recommend. I have terrible handwriting. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I had every kind of lesson. I, you know, I had ballet and tap and horseback riding and French and Spanish and creative writing. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And so I can only imagine that that's what she did to herself, that somehow she found the resources to, um, to take lessons. And then I think a lot of it was also self-taught. So, you know, for example, her, British, her accent was um, an upper crust, um accent. Whereas, you know, I spent a lot of time with foundlings and um, they do not have the same accent. So clearly, she was training herself to speak a different way. And, you know, she was very successful um, at creating this persona of an upper class London dame because no one, no one questioned it um, ever. Um, She was very charming and sophisticated and through parties and and then, you know, all the while had this deep secret. Um, Her humble beginnings. (laughs) So, um, and I never, I never guessed, I I never guessed um, during my upbringing. I knew there was a secret. Um, I knew that she was illegitimate, but beyond that, I didn't know anything. Um, Wow.
0: Now, you talk about, um, you have an older sister as well, and you do mention her, but you don't really talk too much about her her relationship with your mother is that, was that at her request that you sort of left that out?
2: No, I, it, it was really my story to tell. And I wanted to tell the story of me and my mother, you know, I will share that, that she also um, had a troubled relationship um, with um, my mother, but I was very intentional in that. Mm. I didn't want to tell somebody else's story and how how has
0: she you know well, how does she feel about the book about
2: well, you we, sharing we this? Do, I, mean, we, I feel that um, our we have a, we do not have a good relationship, mm-hmm. um, which I view as also another tragic consequence of um, the founding hospital. So I mean, we didn't have parents that were able to raise us in a way that we would be able to form a really strong sibling bond so
0: you know it's one of the things I found most interesting that you sort of discovered and was confirmed by by psychological research is that the foundlings in this hospital did not tend to have close friendships with one another while they were there
2: why was that well, that was that was fascinating because you would think that um, since they didn't have parental figures and they were there, you know, with, among each other, that they would actually bond with each other. Um, and I've heard a couple of different explanations. One is, um, you know, a British psychiatrist who, I mean, John Bowlby, he really pioneered the concept of attachment theory. That if a young infant and child does not um, is not able to attach to a parent or a parent figure when they're young, um, and really provide, you know, teach the child that you, know, you can have safe attachments in your life, that they will always have an inability to bond, and um, you know that's something that you see that is now very well understood now that in institutional care. Um, that you're really interfering with the ability of this child to bond with others throughout their lifetime. Um, And so, you know, and um, now when I've talked to families about it um, that, you know, have made it through, and they said that there was their explanation was that there was nothing to talk about because nothing happened and every day was the same and there was just drudgery and, And all of that. So, but they did, you know, they did bond in a way. They, they got into mischief together with grave repercussions. Um, but, uh, they still would do some mischief, mischief, like sneaking into the, into the garden. Um, my, my mother and some others snuck into the garden and, um, they didn't have much to eat. Um, and so they went in and ate and gorged on carrots. And ate as many carrots as they possibly could. And then they all became ill. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, unfortunately, um, that's how they were discovered. <laughs> <laughs> and got in a bit of trouble. Um, and so, um, and, you know, of course, I, I think it was all worth it for them. I think you
0: know. one of the most delightful parts of the book was um, when your mother ran away.
1: Yes. Yep. <laughs> that's... That was really brave. Really
2: right. brave. Um, uh, yes, my mother. Ma- I mean, it's very interesting that um, and fascinating that my mother was a foundling that was raised in this institution, and you know, there's not that many who discover that about their parents. But it's even more um, unusual that she ran away. Um, this was something that had you know never happened, um, and um, she and another little girl decided that they would just had enough and so they planned an escape and in the middle of world war ii um it, you know there were they were right down the street from um, an air force base called Bomington air force base um which where americans um would be trained to go and fight in uh on the mainland in germany and um and france and et cetera. and so during this bombing um, they snuck out and made their way um, across, uh, you know, to London and beyond. It was, and they did that because of the kindness of strangers. I know. That was so great.
1: That was
2: great. I remember, they'd never, they'd never seen maps. They had never touched money. Um, they, and so they planned this escape where they, they had, they got special buns on Sundays. And what they did is they saved a bun, a Sunday bun, and stuck it in their pocket, and that was their plan. <laughs> and so, I mean, they had uh, literally uh, never
0: left the grounds of this institution.
2: Yeah, they would they would go on sometimes supervised walks. Wow. Um, and that was it. And sometimes well, they wouldn't really see anybody, um, but sometimes they would see Americans go by in convoys um, during the war. And the Americans mm-hmm. would throw gum to them, and um, and these throngs of you know that's the one time that they would actually maybe break their two lines is to grab this gum that was being thrown through the through the um, through the air. And the American GIs were the only people that ever smiled at my mother when she was growing up.
1: Oh, golly. And so.
2: It meant, it meant everything to her, and she just viewed American G.I.s as the friendliest, kindest people. And, you know, it's why she inevitably um, eventually made her way to America, because she viewed Americans as kind. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the story does end happily in many ways in that she found her American GI my father um, at the at the Buena Vista club um, which overlooks um, the San Francisco <laughs> Bay and you know it couldn't be more romantic she was sitting at a table and
1: um, he asked to sit next to her and um, the rest is history Aww. as they say yeah Hey, yeah. what was interesting was because she ran away it seemed like the 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 people at the family home was were more inclined to let let your grandmother take her back. Yes.
2: Well, I mean, it's interesting because they they viewed her as chattel and as a product of sorts to send off to be a servant at one point, and she became so troublesome that they finally um, relented. <laughs> And gave in and um, uh-huh. said, Okay, you know, I, I mean I think that's what happened is they just decided that she just wasn't she wasn't um, worth it as valuable. <laughs> she was exactly well, you know, and, and back in um historic in the history of the silent hospital, they had actually done calculations of how much each child was worth um to the crown in terms of, you know, providing for society and wow. they had monetized these children. Um, oh and my, So yeah. I guess, yeah. They, they so basically I sold them off that,
0: as servants and apprentices.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if yeah. you know, you watch, and you know, for those who like to watch British shows, if you if you uh, now pay attention, a lot of times the servants will say, you know, they're orphaned or they'll say that they don't have parents and all of that. That's because a lot of them came through the founding. Wow. Well, just so you'll see it in things quite
0: often. So. Justine, before we run out of time, I do want to ask about your your route to getting published because this came out from Harper, which is of course one of the yeah. um, premier publishing companies and you got a lot a lot of attention to this book. How did that happen for you?
2: Well it was it, it was really astonishing. Um I mean clearly this was a story that people were interested in hearing. Um, and I know that there's so many riders out there that struggle to get an agent and, um, and I was preparing myself for a really difficult road ahead and I was ready to fight to get this story <laughs> told. And, um, and I sent out about 15, about 15 inquiries. I was very, I was very meticulous. I sent out inquiries to agents very carefully, very, you know, and there was no typos to be had and followed all their instructions and did everything I was supposed to. Do. And, um, I think it's been about 13 or 14. And within a week I had 10 agent offers, including. Oh my, <laughs> God. In New York. oh my gosh. And then, and then, you know, flew up to New York and went around to all the you know to different publishing houses and met with publishers. And then they did a, um, an auction where they bid against each other. And, and then in England I got what was called a preempt, which means that one, publishing house didn't even want to go to they didn't want to fight with anyone else they just wanted the book and that was um virago which um they um uh it's, they publish women such as margaret atwood and maya angelou oh, wow. um it's a division of Hachette and little brown book group and they just wanted the book um and so i got that as well and um and i uh, uh and so it was just well, really well, congratulations. An unusual experience.
0: It, yes. But the an thing is so. it's an unusual story. It's an it's like you said it's it's both personal and historical and also you're an excellent writer. So I think the combination of those things is what brought you this success. Yeah. Um thank you. You're welcome. Welcome. And what's next? Are you still writing are you going are we going to see another book
2: yes I have I I will admit (laughs) that I had um I was I was ready to just jump into the next book and then this little global pandemic happened that that uh you know maybe did not stir my creative juices as they should have (laughs) um but now but now I am I've actually just really started in earnest um and I'm, I'm not quite ready to share the topic, but it will be um, in a similar vein of um, telling a story that dips um, back into the history of why different things happened in the present. Um, and so um, it'll still be a personal story, um, but I'm not quite ready to share it.
0: And is there some way that you will be combining the, um, your writing talents with your passion for environmental law? Um, that may be,
2: yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, all right. I mean, and what? And, <laughs> but I will say what I want to do is bring to life, um, you know, some things that happen in the environmental world in the United States in a way, again, and what my passion is, is talking about things that are true, but in a way that's not, it's not dry and in a way that people can sit down and it can be their, you know, Sunday morning read and they enjoy it, but then they also learn.
0: Ah, oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Justine. And Mom, do you have some parting words?
1: Well, of course, obviously, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the need for nurturing for love prompts the need for food. And without tenderness and security in early childhood, the ability to form meaningful and healthy attachments is relatively damaged. And that was that's a quote from the book.
0: Right. Well, thank you, Justine. And um, I look forward well, to your thank next you. book. <laughs> thank you. And see you all next week on Writers' Voices.
1: bye. Bye bye.